Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we will consider the magic of the horse. And so I should say at the outset that this contemplation might be most helpful to people who don't have much invested in horses. You might think to yourself, well, I, I'm sure horses are great, but I'm not super into them. That's actually helpful because people who have horses in their life or in any way feel some kind of deep connection, they could experience a lot more reactivity to philosophical contemplation about something so connected to them. And really, any of us could. We're, we're going to get to dangerous wisdom territory, and we're trying to ask, how do we get close to an honest openness to the potential magic of horses? What does it even mean? Either if we don't have much to do with them, and then we wonder, well, what do they have to do with me? I don't have anything to do with them. Or if we do have a lot to do with horses, somehow. And then it might feel more obviously charged. In either case, if we've made some kind of commitment to go to the places that scare us, to find the edge of our practice and then continue, that's where we want to come from. But fair warning to horse people, because we will enter the territory of dangerous wisdom here, and all of us will have to walk carefully. It's dangerous wisdom for all of us, and we'll begin to see why, I think, in this contemplation, even though we'll have to think much more about horses. There's a lot of potential, and we may have to start with a pretty broad view. Something came to mind when I was thinking about the magic of horses and how to begin our inquiry. I remembered carrying a strange case of spiritual common law. Spiritual common law teaches us how to meditate when we work with cases of spiritual common law. It's not that we meditate on a case of spiritual common law in the manner of just concentrating on some object, but that by caring for the question of spiritual common law, holding it tenderly, but precisely in the heart, like a candle in our own karmic wind, our karmic wind stops all by itself and we realize the mind of meditation. The strange case I carried was the question of why Nietzsche wept. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was not a sage, but he wanted to be a philosopher, not a professor of philosophy. He wanted to enter the heart of wonder and really see the true nature of self and reality. He wanted to be a Western Buddha. He knew about Buddha. He read, wasn't much available that was very good at his, at his, in his time, but he read probably more than once uh, one of the books that was available on Buddhist philosophy. And he desperately wanted a non-dualistic philosophy, but he couldn't really arrive at one in part because he didn't have access to any good translations of the non-dualistic philosophies that had been so well developed in other cultures. And he didn't have the concepts and practices that other cultures had really specialized and developed that could carry him to the insight that he sought. 
but he did have a lot of great insights. He had a brilliant mind and a courageous soul. His body was racked with illness, and few people could produce so many works of brilliance under the conditions of illness and relative material lack that Nietzsche experienced. For any of us who, who might create excuses for why we don't write our music, sing our song, make our works of art, or follow our spiritual path, Nietzsche stands as a pretty humbling example. He became an extraordinarily sensitive soul. He could sense storms days before they arrived. He was really sensitive to sounds, sights, smells. And a very interesting thinker. He offered skillful and incisive critique of the dominant culture. He knew the roots of the culture well, and he was a skillful psychologist as far as Western psychologists go. He was the first great psychologist of the modern West. Nietzsche wrote some incredibly insightful, inspiring things, also some remarkably stupid things. Some of those stupid things were about women. But his insights far outweigh his stupidities. As a critic of the dominant culture, he stands out. If we want to reflect on the whole of our culture and our own psyche, he's a very good companion, can be very helpful. If we want to revitalize the dominant culture, he has some insights that we might want to sit with. And what I was sitting with was the image of his breakdown. Now, if you don't know much about Nietzsche, one thing to know is he wrote about the, the ubermensch, the kind of oversoul. And this image came to him as a sort of vision. He was in the mountains and had this ecstatic vision. And the ubermensch is like Superman in being heroic and essentially invulnerable. But the invulnerability of the ubermensch doesn't come from being bulletproof. The ubermensch or oversoul isn't from another planet. They're from here rooted in the earth. They have vulnerable flesh. They can feel, they have sensitivity. But they arrived at a spiritual wholeness and so nothing can break them. Nietzsche sought this wholeness, this intimacy with life, and he struggled to fully realize it. And his body hurt, and he wrote brilliant works, but he had to publish them himself. Nobody would publish them. And when he published them, nobody would buy them. You can imagine what that's like. To know you're doing good work, and nobody's interested. And you know you're critiquing your own culture in a way that matters, that's important, and nobody will listen. And he kept at it day after day, seeking philosophical realization, struggling, suffering, seeing the craziness of the culture. He went outside one day and he saw a horse being beaten and he ran to her. It was a mare and he threw his arms around her, shielding her from this flogging and he wept. He just broke down and he never came back. And for, for a time, I kept wondering about this. It was a touchstone for, for many years, and then I really just carried it as a case of spiritual common law. And like any other kind of satori or kensho or a spiritual breakthrough, something shifted, something shattered. 
something breathtaking emerged, and I understood that moment rather fully. And I don't want to defile it with words, but the resonance of the horse and of her being a mare and of this particular situation creating the final spiritual emergency for Nietzsche, from which he couldn't recover because he lacked the resources. It's powerful. Now, the simple story we may like to tell is he was sick and he went crazy. But it's a little too synchronistic. And if we know the work of Stan and Christina Groff, we know about spiritual emergency. And if we've studied indigenous traditions, we know about spiritual emergencies. We know that a shaman or sage can go through this sort of spiritual crisis, which can take on elements of illness, too. And we know that when the Tibetan masters came to Turtle Island and held their first intensive meditation retreats, people ended up in the psych ward. And the teachers began to realize the Western psyche has real problems. And Jung recognized this too. It's why Jung wrote and said, you know, what Eastern practices aren't for Western people. And these teachers from these other cultures saw things in us that other cultures just had never even seen before. Anthropologist Richard Sorensen writes about this. He writes about how some indigenous people, when shown photographs of anger from Western culture, they couldn't contextualize it. I mean, they knew anger, but certain photographs of angry people from the dominant culture left them really shocked and disturbed, like something was profoundly wrong. And if you just showed the same photograph to a Western person, you'd say, what's that? And they'd say, well, that's anger. You say, wow, this person looks really angry, but this was a a shock to some indigenous people. The way we in the dominant culture can get angry, depressed, anxious, the way we can hate ourselves, harm ourselves, the strange sensitivities and fragilities of the Western psyche. Of course, we all have a soul that cannot be defiled or broken, and yet we can experience certain kinds of traumas that are a little foreign to other cultural contexts, and they, these traumas can shake us in ways that aren't necessarily normal in other cultures. And some egos, especially maybe from the dominant culture, when taken to the edge of spiritual realization, create a breakdown in the soul. And the Groffs call that a spiritual emergency. It's an emergence that's trying to happen, and there is an urgency or crisis edge to it. It will either go downhill or we might get through it. We might navigate. We might heal and arrive at a greater wholeness. And Nietzsche didn't have the resources for that. Most people in the West still don't have them because love wisdom doesn't thrive here. This is not a, an ecology of realization for these sorts of things. Maybe it's too bad Nietzsche got enough Buddhist philosophy to want to become a Western Buddha. You know, I don't know. Was that good or bad? And he got such a bad sense of it, in fact, that he thought Buddha was pessimistic. Buddhist philosophy is profoundly positive, not at all pessimistic. However, Buddha is honest, and his honesty can scare us. He's like a physician who tells us plainly that we have a serious, life-threatening illness, and also provides a path to healing. If we listen only to the diagnosis, and we think of the diagnosis as some kind of judgment about us personally, some kind of opinion about us personally, we might mistakenly react. 
and say the doctor's a pessimist. But the diagnosis isn't personal. It's not a matter of pessimism or optimism. And if the doctor tells us we, we could heal, we may dislike the medicine, but at least we know we could take it and recover. All of this might seem like a strange start, but it really will help if we can hold this image in mind. Let it rest in the heart. This image of Nietzsche's breakdown, this image of this mare, this man wrapping his arms around this mare to protect her, that holds more significance than we may realize in relation to what we want to contemplate. This critic of the dominant culture whose critique goes all the way to the core of the dominant culture and this breakdown happens at the site of a mare being beaten. And we look around us, look at the world we have. Everything we see in the world we have wouldn't be here if it weren't for the horse. Obviously, the horse didn't directly create everything we see. It's just that we got here on the backs, on the bones, on the flesh and blood and suffering of horses. So talking about the horse isn't easy, really, for any of us. And we have to keep going mindfully, as mindfully as we can. So we've already said that contemplating the horse offers nourishment for all of us and presents dangerous wisdom. That's also good for all of us. We have to try to confront it if we're going to get right with ourselves and the world. If you don't have horses in your life, that might make the initial provocations a little gentler. Nevertheless, speaking about horses really honestly carries us all into the wild landscape of dangerous wisdom because the archetypal energies of the horse along with the long history of horse-human relationship, which goes back to the strange roots of the dominant culture. That makes all of this very charged. And when we're talking about the roots, we're talking about going back to the speakers of Proto-Indo-European, the root tongue of most of the languages in the dominant culture. And of course, the dominant languages of the dominant culture for sure. So all of us in the dominant culture and all of us affected in any way by the dominant culture will find dangerous wisdom in the horse and it can make us reactive. Anybody who gets any benefit from the dominant culture. And again, because of the archetypal energies of the horse, all human beings can experience both the existential threat the horse presents to the ego and the incredible potential the horse offers to the soul. We might not want to believe in these things, in mysteries and magic and the horse as a mirror and vehicle for the soul. But people do long to experience magic and millions of people in particular long to experience magic 
the magic of horses, or think they have already experienced it. And yet when it comes to confronting the shadows and other obstacles of ignorance that keep us from the fullest possible experience of life and its wonders, we often bulk, tense up, rationalize, get defensive. And we often do this precisely under the guise of being rational or standing up for ourselves or our experience, you know, what kind of person we are, or any number of other maneuvers of the ego. It's really challenging because, of course, we're, the dominant culture oppresses all sorts of people, then they don't feel seen, and we get this whole language of, I'm not being seen. But the thing that wants to be seen is just some dimension of the ego in many cases. It's not like our essence. You're not seeing my essence. Well, what is that? Most of us don't know what that is. It's not an object. It's not a story that we could tell about some experience we had. And so we may insist that we are not being defensive or rationalizing, and that's exactly how the best rationalizations work. We just call them reasons, or we call them knowledge. We may call them self-knowledge, knowledge about horses, knowledge about politics and the world. And I see this basic situation all the time. It's not like, you know, I got some new client yesterday and suddenly saw this unique phenomenon of how people get defensive around dangerous wisdom. We're talking about this because it has to do with all of us, whether we like horses or not, and horses can provoke it. And what I see with clients, same thing that other philosophers saw with their students or psychologists see, is that it's challenging to fully enter the unknown. We always seem to want to insist on what we know. But Sophia insists on our not knowing. And you can think of that as a hyphenated word. We're not trying to get intellectual here. We're trying to just be precise. We're trying to get at experience. And experience is always more precise than our words, so that's sometimes why we fiddle around with the words. Sophia, wisdom, she's just an image. It's not a concept. It's a sense of wisdom. She insists that we quit behaving as if we have no unconscious as if we know exactly what our problems are and how to solve them. Our politicians behave like this too. Everybody does. Our tech gurus, you know, they're going to save the world because they apparently understand it. They know what the problems are and how to solve them. If we really understood ourselves so well, we wouldn't have the problems we have. And horses wouldn't have the problems they have. Horses suffer because humans think they know. In his personal journals, the wonderful philosopher, great philosopher Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, clinging to what you have learned is worse than not learning it in the first place. And we had a line from Auden in another of our contemplations, a very similar expression. 
If we don't think we know anything about horses, or we think we know very little, then contemplating them can help us a lot because it can help us let go of the things we think we do know. It's through this thing that's a little bit less charged. The danger will come, but just maybe not at first. Now, on the other hand, if we think we know something about horses, however profound, because we could have years of experience. The horse world is, is probably like every other world. You know, I've been in different kinds of worlds. I've seen the tango world and the horse world. And there's always this sense of the, the person, each person knows. And they have the experience and they can show you why. And, you know, I've been a dancer for 25 years and I've done all these shows and this is how you do tango. And then, you know, you get just this one version of it. And it might work in certain ways. It might miss a lot. A lot of times, say, in the tango world, all the right answers miss all the spiritual depth. And in the horse world, it's just very charged. Everybody's sure they know what they're doing. And because uh, many of these people care about horses, then there is the sentient being at stake. And they, they, they do think they're trying to do something right by the horse. And they might have very good intentions. And we can only ask ourselves, well, if I know so much, why is it that I'm not free? Why is it that I'm not just enlightened? And, and that question might seem like, well, what, is that relevant? But yeah, because we can sense that the facts about horses are relatively boring. And anything interesting about horses, anything profound, that carries us into a different territory. Socrates tried to make this point too. He said, you know, look, if there's, he was asking Euthyphro if, if the gods ever disagree about anything, you know, and he said, if they did disagree, it would, wouldn't be about something obvious, right? It would have to be about something profound. Nobody's going to disagree about an obvious thing. Like if I pick up a stone, are we really going to argue whether I have a stone in my hand? I mean, if you want to get abstract or obtuse about it, sure. But it's the profound stuff. And the profound stuff puts the observer and the observed into non-duality. There. That's it, you see? Once we get to the areas that might be profound in relation to anything, the horse, dancing, painting, life, then claiming knowledge there means claiming self-knowledge. It means claiming wisdom, love, and beauty. That's such an important point. Once we get someplace interesting, we have broken down the duality between the observer and the observed. And if I start to claim, I know about this, I'm essentially saying, well, I must be enlightened. If we have any possibility of growth in the realm of wisdom, love, and beauty, any chance we might become more wise, loving, and beautiful than something about horses remains both unknown and potentially threatening to our ego, maybe even humiliating to our ego. Isn't that funny? And it applies to everything. And that's why also it's so interesting in my work with people who are high-level performers. And it sometimes marks the difference between a very high-level performer and someone who's sort of more mediocre. Because as someone who's more mediocre at something you know, say like a kind of average dancer, they might get very defensive when I try to help them with their dancing because they want to insist on what they know. 
a very, very high-level person can often be the person who is so committed that they're always willing to say, well, show me what I don't know. They're willing to be humiliated. Well, I, I've been doing it that way all this time. And this other way is so much better. The non-doing is so much better than the doing. So we always have to be willing to take this risk. We can take a deep breath in and maybe observe any reactivity that might come, even though we're, I think we're going to try to take a broad view here. I think it's the best way to really get a sense of the magic. We might have to really zoom out and see if we could sense the possibility of magic. Maybe we won't be able to touch it directly, but could we say, wait, we've arrived at a question that could put us at the edge, the edge of the wild, the edge of the magic. Once we admit that we have some space for wisdom, a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more love, a little bit more beauty, grace, then we can admit that however pleasant However ecstatic our experiences with horses or anything else, we might yet find ourselves cut off from a deeper magic and mystery that letting go could let us experience. People can take MDMA or LSD and have a marvelous experience. doesn't mean it really healed them. Not Maybe not completely. Maybe it helped something. Maybe it helped nothing. It was just a really powerful, wonderful experience didn't necessarily reveal anything truly helpful about the nature of reality. It takes more than a powerful experience. It takes learning, rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. That means a philosophical context. And learning means a movement into the unknown and from the unknown. That's the movement. It's into and from the unknown. We have to be in the unknown. A mind of not knowing. And with the horse, we not only have to admit that we might not know anything, or not anything really important, or at least something is left out, but more than that, the horse is still going to present this existential threat, including the threat to what we unconsciously fear we might have to give up or renounce in order to fully experience the magic and mystery of the horse and the world. Now, to add to the challenge, we contemplate all of this in the midst of the dominant culture. and The horse presents an existential threat to the dominant culture, the whole shebang. We can't think that we could live in this culture and have no infection from conquest consciousness, that nothing in us reacts on behalf of the culture. And that's because every single one of us gets some kind of benefit from it, even if it's a questionable benefit, an ambivalent benefit, an ambiguous benefit, however we want to describe it. To enter the unknown means forgetting everything we think we know and having the courage and vulnerability to stand naked in the presence of the horse. Naked in the wilderness of dangerous wisdom. 
the horse's dangerous wisdom embodied, symbolically, archetypally, and in their very sacred presence, the horse defies conquest consciousness so profoundly that even people who love horses deep down somewhere get a little nervous because we're all complicit in their continued oppression. And we all have a responsibility for the karmic wounds of the past, the memory, the memory of what human beings have done to the horse, done through the horse, done with the horse, how we have used the horse to oppress, how we have, we have used the horse for violence and aggression, how we put violence and aggression onto the horse, into their bodies and minds, into their world. And again, this includes people who proclaim love for horses currently today. Now this movement into the wild wisdom of horses happened during our contemplation of magic and memory. And so I think it ter in terms of kind of zooming out a little bit to get a sense of the big magic, the big medicine that's possible, we can consider some of the memory. And one thing to keep in mind, especially for those of us living on Turtle Island, is that the mutual memory of this land and the horse goes back millions of years. The primate lineage may also have started on Turtle Island with a being called the Plesiadipus, but the primates, it seems, ended up traveling to Europe and then Africa. In contrast, the horse did its major evolution here on Turtle Island. Now, we should probably acknowledge that some indigenous people see their ancestors as always having lived on Turtle Island. And maybe th that's so. At the very least, we find growing support for the possibility that humans have lived on Turtle Island for 100,000 years or more. 100,000 years or more. And that means they didn't come over on that Bering Land Bridge story that many of us may have been told. Because when you go back far enough, glaciers block the passage and the, the timeline doesn't hold. The ordinary story doesn't work. So we may see evidence of 130,000 years. Who, who knows? Maybe more. And maybe people came by boat rather than walking across a bridge. Either way, humans lived here on Turtle Island a very long time. Thousands and thousands of years, during which the place remained astonishingly abundant with life. We, we know this. When the Europeans came here, it was just mind-boggling. They couldn't believe it. People thought that this was all a fairy tale. The people in Europe, you know, when they heard about this abundance, it was just no one could really believe it. And within a few centuries, incredible degradation as a result of conquest consciousness. That style of consciousness. Now, for much of that period of degradation, People had the idea, the conquerors had the idea that horses were a foreign species. Maybe we could even call them an invasive species. That's how they're treated sometimes, uh, certainly in the past hundred years. Horses came with the invaders. But unlike the European humans, horses were coming home. This place belonged to their ancestors and they evolved here, proved themselves true 
survivors, and innovators. Innovators who helped the place flourish, not like in conquest culture, innovators who make a place decline. That's what innovation and development mean in the conquest culture. Now, if we want to speak with real clarity, we need to say that horses didn't merely evolve here. You know, like there, here was this place and then the horses were in it. No, they made this place. It's their place. Their magic conjured it. Their magic still throbs in the hills and plains. Waves with the grasses. Sits quietly with the earth. Now the very early horse is sometimes called the Aohippus, which means dawn horse. And perhaps it looks a, a little bit more like a modern horse than the earliest primate looked like a human. You know, if you went back and looked at that tiny little primate who might have been our ancient, ancient ancestor, and you looked at that little horse, the little primate might look a little less like us than the horse. Who knows? The Aohippus emerged over 50 million years ago. And it's interesting because the timeline is not that different from when you're looking at the, you know, when you, there are all these branches, you know, following back the evolution. And you might start somewhere close to the same period in, in following the line of a human. Like, oh, this is the first primate. It might go back somewhere around the same time frame. It's interesting. It took over 40 million years from that emergence of the dawn horse for the modern horse to appear, what we call the equus. So these beings made Turtle Island over 50 million years. They survived great shifts in climate, also shifts in vegetation, as what's referred to as C4 grass evolved from C3 grass. Horses and grasses go together, as do horses and plains, horses and the whole of Turtle Island, horses and the whole of the world. One of the things we might want to consider about this land, about land in general, are concepts of good land, wild land, and sacred land. Gary Snyder contemplates these terms in his collection of essays published as The Practice of the Wild. It's a marvelous collection. Maybe every U.S. citizen should have to read that book. You throw out some of the supposed classic literature. You know, forget Ben Franklin. Read Gary Snyder. And at the very least, we might all do ourselves the favor of reading the first essay, which he calls The Etiquette of Freedom. Wow, it's just marvelous. But we're thinking now of an essay he called Good, Wild, Sacred. We won't try interpreting Gary Snyder. This is not a lesson on Gary Snyder. You can look up that essay at your leisure, but let's just think a little bit. Good land, what's that? In practice, what is good land in practice? It seems to be land we can fence off and do with as we please. It means land we can extract from. That's what good land is. Wild land means land, land we can't extract from or haven't figured out how to extract from or just haven't yet extracted from. Usually means a landscape we don't live in too. And sacred land is often wild, maybe usually so, except in cases where you might have a plot of land that's been cultivated in accord with some kind of ritual. 
The wild and the sacred usually belong to no one, while good land means land someone fenced off or could fence off if they bought it. And then they start invading it with their agendas. It's Good land is, it, it abides our agenda. Now all of this got encoded in the philosophy of the dominant culture as philosophy went from love wisdom to a matter of opinions and proclamations and arguments. It's not to say that we shouldn't have given each other reasons for things or that we can't uh, analyze and discuss and think critically, but things just got derailed. And John Locke is a really good example, very highly regarded in the Western tradition. Kids have to read Locke in college. He was a townie, not a nature person. He grew up in a market town near Bristol, educated in London and Oxford. And in any case, he comes from the dominant culture and a land long removed from wildness. In a passage from his second treatise on government, Locke writes, It is labor, indeed, that puts the difference of value on everything. And let anyone consider what the difference is between an acre of land planted with tobacco or sugar, sown with wheat or barley, and an acre of the same land lying in common, without any husbandry upon it. And he will find that the improvement of labor makes the far greater part of the value. I think it will be but a very modest computation to say that of the products of the earth useful to the life of man, nine-tenths are the effects of labor. Nay, if we will rightly estimate things as they have come to our use and cast up the several expenses about them, what in them is purely owing to nature and what to labor, we shall find that in most of them ninety-nine hundredths are wholly to be put on the account of labor. There cannot be any clearer demonstration of anything than several nations of the Americans are of this, who are rich in land and poor in all the comforts of life, whom nature, having furnished as liberally as any other people with the materials of plenty, i.e. fruitful soil, apt to produce in abundance what might serve for food, raiment, and delight, yet for want of improving it by labor, have not one hundredth part of the conveniencies we enjoy, and a king of a large and fruitful territory there feeds, lodges, and is glad worse than a day-laborer in England. Okay, we're being a bit cheeky with Locke, but this seems like an extraordinary expression of ignorance. Surely we could imagine more ignorant things to say. We could imagine dumber things to suggest. But this ranks up pretty high as a symptom of ignorance. This kind of thought suggests that the land doesn't have any value in itself. And what you should do is look upon the incredible beauty of Turtle Island and immediately ignore the Bible. That's really what this comes to, because Locke could have done a much better job by quoting the Bible, and we would have maybe all been better off. Now, you might know what I'm thinking of. So many of us know the famous passages from the Sermon on the Mount. What does Christ say there? Now, those who aren't Christian can listen to his teachings as love wisdom, 
the teachings of a philosopher, a sage. So let's just contemplate. Christ spoke to his students saying, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Oh, that line alone shines, doesn't it? Do not be anxious about your life. What will anxiousness add? What will it help? It's going to put you, it is a state of mind that makes you behave improperly, unskillfully. Let's just hear the rest of what Jesus said. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They never sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to the measure of your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now isn't that marvelous? You can see how the door to spiritual materialism certainly opens there. But if we really listened, the command is to root ourselves in sacredness, root ourselves in the miracle, the magic of life, the interwovenness of things. And Jesus totally contradicts Locke and gives us a more more ecological wisdom than we find typically in the core of the dominant culture, in its style of consciousness. Jesus tells us that the indigenous people of Turtle Island were in some sense better Christians than the missionaries who tried to convert them. They might ask, convert them to what? To Christianity or to conquest consciousness? Many of the missionaries ended up acknowledging that the indigenous people lived wisely and well. And maybe the genocide got fueled in part by an unconscious or even conscious resentment of seeing people live in accord with teachings our culture was supposed to revere but couldn't live by. Instead, we live by anxiety and craving, hope and fear, clinging and reactivity, exactly what Jesus is asking us to give up in these passages. And yet we can't add a single cubit to the measure of our life 
by means of our hope and fear, our anxiety and craving. Our agenda will never accord with the divine will because the divine will isn't an agenda. In talking about the measure of our life, Jesus wasn't just talking about the length of our life. We don't have to narrow it like that. The measure of our life is not the length alone. That was precisely his point, we could say. He tried to get us to appreciate the value of life, the whole of life. We cannot make life itself bigger or more valuable than it is. And we cannot make our own life matter any more than it already does. We could say the value of our own life and the value of the world as it is scares us. And that's in part how philosophies like Locke's can get a foothold. We want philosophy that justifies conquest consciousness once we're locked into it. So John Locke at least tells the truth of conquest consciousness. It's the gospel of conquest. Locke gives voice to the delusion, voice to the profane view of life. Locke tells us, well, you come upon the incredible beauty of Turtle Island, and instead of standing in awe, instead of entering the sacredness of the place, as Jesus said, right, root yourself in righteousness, it's much better if you just go in there, knock everything down, invade it, cut into the earth, plant some tobacco and sugar. And isn't it marvelous that he picked those in particular? The dominant culture hungers for the sweetness of life because conquest consciousness cuts us off from life's inherent sweetness. The dominant culture seeks stimulation in any form it can find it, certainly tobacco. Now why? Because we lack a sense of belonging to life, to each other, to all our relations, to all our teachers in this world. We feel cut off from the inherent wonder of wildness, the awe of sacredness, the thrill of the magic and mystery at work every moment. So we take sacred land and wild land and we turn it into good land. Meanwhile, some indigenous people might be saying, well, you know, this land you're talking about, is, it's sacred. Why do you think something's wrong with it or that you need to extract some kind of value or pu apparently put value into it? According to Locke, it doesn't have value on its own. We're going to put it in there. Why do you think you can possess it? How can you possess or improve upon the sacred? Locke expresses the vision of the dominant culture, which seems extraordinarily narrow, short-sighted, fragmenting, and fragmented. And meanwhile, other philosophers would not say things like that. Certainly, many indigenous philosophers would find this confused thinking. I can't imagine a philosopher like Buddha saying something like that because, in particular, he was the philosopher of interwovenness par excellence. And Locke here shows a kind of ignorance of interwovenness, fundamentally. Locke's view means we can put fences around things and we can make things better by cutting into the earth 
putting in a monoculture. Forget diversity. Knock everything down and stick some tobacco seeds in the earth. And an indigenous person there too might say, well, you know, we plant things, we do that. But first of all, do you realize that tobacco is a sacred plant and the earth is sacred too? You don't just plow up the earth, cut into the earth and stick a bunch of tobacco in the ground. That's not working with a sacred medicine or a sacred plant, and that's not working with the earth. So there seems to be some kind of confusion here about how the world functions. It doesn't seem clear that you know how to work with a plant, how to listen, how to relate to it. And when you smoke it, it doesn't seem like anything ever happens. There's no ceremony. You don't have much of a relationship with it. Somebody else grows it, harvests it as a commodity. It ends up being a matter of machinery and economics invading the land. And in the dominant culture, the notion that land could be sacred doesn't really sit well. And sacred land would be land held in common by a people, one that locks, it sort of challenges there. He says, you know what, it's held in common and what, nobody's doing anything to it? In the dominant culture, land is good when you put a fence around it and do as you please. And you might do nothing, but it's still yours. The notion of the commons had already begun to break down pretty significantly by Locke's time, and he doesn't have any real deep regard for it. And we contemplate all of this because the horse illustrates the same kind of challenge to the logic of our culture in a variety of ways, and we'll get at it a little bit more directly. But certainly, when we think of Jesus' words, we think of a horse's mane, even tangled and tossed in the wind, looks more beautiful than anything we can get from the fanciest hairdresser. Their coat, even covered in mud, looks better than the finest suits and dresses. Horses are beautiful creatures. We just recognize their beauty. And more importantly, horses know what to do. They have a job, and they know their job. When we see horses anywhere in, shall we say, non-wild situations, we often see that horses look bored because they have a very big important job to do that they don't get to do when we confine them. The horse cultivates the whole of life onward. And we use the word cultivate there to try to allow for a positive sense of cultivate and culture. To try to evoke a sense of the non-duality of nature and culture. The horse's culture is nature. And nature is the horse's culture. And so a cultured horse is one who is a natured horse, one in attunement with nature, in attunement with wildness, one whose activity nourishes the whole of nature and contributes to the flourishing of life. A cultured horse is a magical horse. The horse conjured Turtle Island by cultivating the whole of Turtle Island without having some kind of personal agenda about it. Human beings 
we, we get driven by agendas. Captain Clock, Colonel Calendar, and Admiral Agenda. Those are our, our leaders. And one of those agendas is we're going to cultivate the land. We're going to develop the land. And we're developing and innovating all the time, those words, development and innovation, growth. And we apply it to ourselves, too. We're going to grow. Like James Hillman once said, well, how, how big are you going to get? Are you, are you going to be 25 feet tall? Are you growing tomatoes in there? What, do you, what is this growth metaphor? What does it really mean? Maybe we need to be letting go. Maybe that's what we need to mature at this point. Letting go of agendas. And our agenda is not to cultivate the world. That's, it takes on a far more narrow meaning. And so cultivating ends up being, you know, a cultivated person is a person who's not wild, who's not connected to nature. It's often what it means. A cultured person. Someone in New York somewhere who has tickets to the ballet. And I'm not saying the ballet is bad, it's just that we've created a duality. And sometimes it might even be better than to say the horse's job is to practice the whole of life onward. The horse doesn't cultivate in a narrow sense, but there's a practice, a practice of the wild, a practice of the sacred that Gary Snyder correctly names, an etiquette of the wild, an etiquette of freedom, an etiquette of sacredness. Horses know that etiquette. Horses know the etiquette of freedom. People rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, people who live as indigenous, who live in accord with the etiquette of freedom, with the etiquette of sacredness, the etiquette of the wild, they practice the wild. They live as a practice of the wild, a practice of the sacred. That's magic. Magic is the practice of the wild. Magic is the practice of the sacred. It's how we conjure the world. We always practice the whole of life onward, either skillfully or not. We learn based on our practice. We make things real by practice. Practice and realization go together. We realize what we practice, and as we practice, so we realize, so we bring to fruition. Bringing to fruition means ecologies of realization, ecologies of insight and inspiration, you know, like you're in a forest of inspiration. The best of those ecologies properly seen abide as sacred and in some way as wild. Indigenous people on Turtle Island practiced the whole of life onward. And as part of that, they did work with the land. They tried to work in accord with the land, in accord with the etiquette of freedom. Not every nation on Turtle Island necessarily lived in full attunement with reality. We don't have to assume that somehow indigenous automatically means totally rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, as if no beings in an indigenous culture could ever become victims of ignorance. Wisdom can appear in a non-indigenous culture, and wisdom could be lacking in one we would refer to as generally indigenous. It can happen. Some indigenous cultures did create ecological degradation 
And consequently, usually because the way things worked, that could potentially mean the collapse of the culture. Or it could mean the culture had to move someplace else and try to figure it out all over again. In the case of the dominant culture, it seems like we have this secret wish that maybe we could go somewhere else and try to figure it out again. And so the only thing left for us is to wish for another planet. And our science fiction brims with this wish. There's just always this new storyline about how it is that we're going to get to a different planet. The aliens are going to come here. We're going to discover ancient alien technology. There's the whole set of stories about new worlds being discovered. And in many of them, what happens is the people go there and start the conquest process all over again. They just get to start it anew in a place that hasn't been so attacked and abused. So in our world, conquest consciousness has spread everywhere. And because of that, that means we face the possibility of the collapse of the conditions of life, period. The human species faces real risk, as do countless other species. We've already made species extinct by means of our ignorance, and others are going every day. And so while wisdom has appeared in the dominant culture, the ignorance has become overwhelming, certainly at least in its consequences. Now, we don't have to think of the dominant culture as monolithic. We might see it as a loose collection, a family of cultures with a certain style of consciousness, a style of thinking, an industrialization, a mechanization, and an approach to the earth and to life that has conquest, extraction, domination, degradation, all sorts of personal agendas as its modus operandi. And so we might say that this collection of cultures, or some kind of overarching family of cultures, practices an overall style of consciousness. The traditions of the dominant culture have had plenty of wisdom appear in them, but overall the dominant culture doesn't root itself in wisdom, love, and beauty, and thus lives out of attunement with ecological reality, and cannot consider itself indigenous. On the other side, a culture may appear indigenous in some ways, but may have significant lack of attunement with reality, however we want to characterize a lack of holistic and coherent rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty, and in ecological realities. And at this point, the pervasive presence of conquest consciousness has made it so that even many traditionally indigenous people may also have to re-indigenize in the sense that they have been affected by conquest consciousness. You know, it's like getting, getting a virus and then being like, yeah, you know, I got, I got, a, I got a fever, I, I have to get well again. And also that the earth has changed so much due to conquest consciousness. Right? Because it's not as if we can just go back to some practice that used to work on Turtle Island because maybe it doesn't work here anymore because it's been changed too much. So all of these things taken together in light of our interwovenness, means that we can all think of ourselves as re-indigenizing together. It's not to say some people aren't way at the front of that. You know, there's a, there's a leading edge there. And a lot of times it's in indigenous people, clearly. And the dominant culture might have to give things up. Might have to give up a lot more, relatively speaking. Might have to renounce some aspects of itself in favor of teachings from cultures it has conquered. And we use that term relatively, you know. It's not the sense that these cultures were defeated. They weren't defeated. They survived. But the, in the relative sense that they f 
fell victim to this domination, that they were invaded, attacked by it, and they were to some degree affected by it. It's, that's just a reasonable thing. So it happened. And now that invading consciousness in order to heal itself and all the wrongs that have happened from it might have to attune itself to ways of living that an indigenous orientation can teach, an indigenous culture could teach, because that's the way we become indigenous. We don't become indigenous by forcing the American way of life onto Turtle Island. Now this might seem... You might think, well, where are we going this? But really, we're getting closer to this larger view of the horse and the magic the horse may offer. The horse knows how to live here. Americans don't. As a general, a general description, Americans are on the wrong track. Things are continuing to degrade. Losing soil. Pollution levels still high. Species being lost, crazy storms, polar vortexes. And we behave as if we can just dig in deeper to the American way of life and just keep forcing it onto Turtle Island. And that's part of what the wild horse roundups represent. For those who don't know about this, the Bureau of Land Management regularly does roundups of wild horses. And these are brutal and traumatizing experiences, usually involving helicopters chasing wild horses all over sometimes killing them just in the chase, herding them into pens, families get broken up, horses suffer, and then the horses get auctioned off maybe as little as a dollar. It's easy to get a wild Mustang for 25 bucks. If the horses don't sell, they get sent to massive boarding facilities, kind of function in the style of industrialized agriculture, similar model. Now they get sent there because it's technically illegal for horses, wild horses to go to slaughter. But some of them do end up getting slaughtered. It's not like it's going to stop someone who really wants to make money off of, you know, I can buy a horse for 25 bucks and make a lot of money sending it to slaughter in Canada or Mexico or someplace. So we need wild horse, cues, wild horse rescues like the one where I now serve as philosopher in residence because the horses need to be saved from slaughter or a life of confinement or a life of abuse once they've been rounded up. Why do we round them up? Well, the roundups just illustrate a pattern of insanity because the Bureau of Land Management could invest money and resources into the ecologies where wild horses live. They could try to make the ecologies healthy. They could do all sorts of things that would reduce the need to round up so many horses. But they can't because they are forced to spend such a huge chunk of their budget on the horses they've already rounded up that the only choice is to round up more. There's nothing left to do anything different, so they're trapped. The roundups represent the perpetuation of a style of consciousness that won't give in, that won't renounce. It's an addictive style of consciousness. And when we're talking about renunciation here, we're talking about a touchstone of love wisdom. And Chogyam Trungpa, philosopher uh, from Tibet, put it beautifully, all of the traditions of love wisdom demand renunciation. And Trungpa said, renunciation means Realizing our nostalgia for our own suffering is full of shit. Realizing that our nostalgia for our own patterns of insanity, our own ways of living in the world ignorantly, that we, we have this nostalgia for our own ignorance and our own suffering, and we finally say, 
you know what? That's enough. I need to get out of this pattern of insanity. And so I'm going to renounce the things that part of me wants to cling to. Okay, so now, you see, we've painted like a, we have a larger mandala here. We've taken a larger view of land. What's the nature of land? How does conquest consciousness view it? And what does the horse represent? And we can start to approach the bigger magic of the horse. The horse demands renunciation from us, and that scares the hell out of parts of us, the parts that cling, the parts that are anxious. All the way back to Jesus telling us, don't, don't be anxious. You're not going to add a single cubit to your life, but we're out there trying to add cubit after cubit. And our thought leaders and tech gurus, the billionaires, you know the people, they're trying to add cubit after cubit. And we can act like we don't cling. And again, I see this over and over and over in clients and students. It's all throughout the history of psychology and philosophy, love wisdom throughout the world. People can't seem to admit that they have an unconscious. That the ego is not just conscious, that clinging and self-centeredness and delusion all operate on an unconscious basis. So unless we're fully enlightened, the horse demands renunciation from us. And that gets provocative to the ego. Let's get a little bit clearer. Let's consider what happened when horses returned home to Turtle Island. When horses returned home, the conquest peoples tried to keep them under control. The conquest people didn't know the horses had returned home. And of course, horses ended up escaping in various ways. And when they escaped, they thrived because this is their place. They made it. And one of the big turning points in conquest it's referred to as like the, the great horse release or something like this in the, in the literature. The great horse dispersal, maybe. But it happened in 1680, and it's centered in the turquoise pueblo near Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, the conquest people knew that their domination depended on the horse, you know. It's a lot easier. It's so easy for a person on horse to dominate people who don't have horses. And so they tried to keep the indigenous people away from the horses. But... Over time, horses were getting import, more, more horses were coming from Europe and horses were being born here. And so they had to get the indigenous people to be stable hands. They had to, of course, institute that same hierarchical model that conquest consciousness loves. So it's like the early corporations. You know, it's the same model that we have today for corporations. And we, we've got to have the janitors, uh, you know, we've got to have the people learning how to drive the Teslas because they have to park them when I need valet parking. So we need to have the indigenous people learn how to take the horse into the stable, because I'm not going to do that. That's what the conquest people thought. And so over time, the indigenous people were starting to learn about horses, and they realized that this was key. So in 1680, they coordinated a huge rebellion against the conquest people, and that involved taking control of the horses and also releasing a bunch of horses. Maybe 3,000 horses or something like that went off into the wild. And over the next two centuries, the wild horse population on Turtle Island went from possibly zero. It's not clear whether or not they were totally extinct here, but let's just assume pretty small, to maybe two million or more. Millions of horses. People reported seeing vast oceans of wild horses galloping over the plains of the West. It's like incredible. 
And the thing about a lot of those horses is they were no good. Just like land, if you can't fence it in and extract value, it's no good. Now, for a while, the horses could be made good. You could capture them, fence them in, sell them off. So people started to try to take the wild and the sacred and turn it into the good, both with land and horses. And what did horses do? What did the wild horses do? Well, the wild horses, they invaded the invaders. That's right. It's remarkable. The wild horses trample into these places, knocking down the fences and liberating the horses who were trapped. Some of them might have been fully domesticated, maybe for a long time. The horse came from a place of sacredness and wildness. A place that says, who do you think you are? That you think you can possess this place and these sentient beings. Who do you think you are to think you can put up a fence here and call this mine? And these beings are mine, my property. Wolf said the same thing. And conquest settlers began to hate the horse the way they hated wolves. Horses got bounties put on them the way wolves did. People went around shooting horses, just killing them. Eventually the bounties went away and horses got value extracted in ever more brutal ways. And mainly, as we mentioned before, they all got almost totally exterminated by being turned into dog food. The magic of the horse, in order to receive that magic, it demands healing all of that and radically changing our relationship to the horse and beginning to really listen to the horse so that the horse can help us re-indigenize. Re-indigenizing means renouncing what doesn't work and learning from people who know how to live somewhere. People who know how to live, a culture that knows how to live in a manner rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, in a manner attuned with ecological and spiritual realities. The horse knows how to live here. Horse culture is nature. Why not listen? Rather than listen to the human beings who want to manage the land, control the land, cultivate the land, make it good land, keep eliminating wild land, keep trying to add cubits to the measure of the value of their life and the world. That's the history of conquest. And we have seen this get inflamed recently. This continued push on Turtle Island to go from wild and sacred to good. Conquest consciousness tries to open up national parks and wildlife refuges now for extraction and development. Still marching in step with John Locke's philosophy of ignorance, still rejecting even Christian love wisdom. Land isn't good until we get rid of wild and sacred. And in the dominant culture, again, the very notion of sacred land doesn't have a place, doesn't sit well. You know, I think sometimes of Highlander. Remember that, those Highlander movies where the people can't fight on holy ground? Well, is that ever a forest or anything? No, it's, they, can't, they can't, can't go into a church and fight. So they can't go into a building, something constructed. That's the holy ground. Or maybe a place where we buried people. But the notion that there could be a sacred grove or a whole sacred forest, well, that started dying out a long time ago. In fact, that's what the story of Arisachthon illustrates. Arisachthon couldn't stand that there was this sacred grove 
and that there was a divine tree in the sacred grove, and the workers wouldn't cut it all down so that he could extract the wood and make money, wanted to put his labor into the thing to make it better, right? And this sacred tree was massive, so it was just this big pile of money to him. He wants it all cut down, and so he goes in and cuts down the divine tree himself. And similarly, Gilgamesh destroys the sacred forest. It's one of our oldest mythological figures, Gilgamesh, one oldest one that we have record of. So in dominant culture, in conquest consciousness, we get stories instructing us that this is what happens. The wild and the sacred get destroyed. The land is good when we invade it, cut into it, extract. And then the women who go to the wild and the sacred, they eventually had to be hunted down too, hence the witch hunts, because the women were probably the main keepers of ecological wisdom and attunement with wildness. We have some clear historical support for that notion, that many women were healers, keepers of the knowledge of the wild, in touch with nature. So this whole oppression of nature, horse, woman, and earth, all goes together. Makes it interesting how large a feminine presence there is in the horse world today. And our sensitivity to the magic and mystery of women, of the feminine, we could say, goes all together with our sensitivity, and by that we, we can really mean reactivity, to the magic and mystery of the horse and the earth. The reactivity around magic is the reactivity around the feminine and the equine and the terrestrial. It's become that way. It's not like it's necessary. It's just the associations became natural given the development of conquest consciousness in tandem with the use of the horse and the way patriarchy pro probably goes together also with the horse. You know, this is an anthropological kind of analysis because you're going to send some guy in a horse to watch a flock and he's the one who's going to go do raids on other people's property and so on and so on and so on. So you have this strange going together of patriarchy, domination over the horse, violence toward the horse and with the horse, domination of nature and women and people close to nature, anybody too wild, the attempt to push magic out of our minds, to push magic into the shadow, into the disreputable, it's all rather curious. The witch hunts, too, they reveal some of this all going together, you know. Men were the hunters, the inquirers, the inquisitors. It's all strange stuff. And again, we're trying to get at the way in which really listening to the horse defies all of this. And it has to do with learning from a being who knows, a being who made this place, who knows how to live in this place. And it, that's an incredible idea. Because usually what happens with horses is that there's just a human agenda. The most powerful magic we could experience gets lost. And what we're trying to do in, in our contemplation here is enter territory similar to when anthropologists went to the Amazon and they found out about ayahuasca. So we're kind of like anthropologists looking at this strange potential situation. The anthropologists couldn't understand how the indigenous people figured out the process for making ayahuasca medicine. Because the medicine involves a leaf that gives visions, but if you eat the leaf, nothing happens. We have enzymes in our stomach and it breaks down the medicine. 
So the shamans had to combine the leaf with another, a different plant that inhibits the enzyme. And it all has to be processed and cooked the right way. Now the problem is the sheer volume of species in the Amazon. In the Amazon, you find more species in an acre or two than the whole of what we call North America. And these two plants are not related. The vine and the leaf are not related. It's not like they grow next to each other and the people just, you know, decided to find out what happened. Trial and error is just the silliest explanation. And the anthropologist said, well, given all these species, how did these people figure it out? And the answer that the indigenous people give is, the plants taught us what to do. To conquest consciousness, that's ridiculous. It doesn't compute. And anthropologists who have wanted to support indigenous peoples have found this a challenging notion. Even the ones who later became convinced that there was something fundamentally right about it. For instance, Jeremy Narby talks about this in his book, which is an excellent read. He talks about how he wanted to show the dominant culture that indigenous people knew very well how to manage their resources. Now, we use phrases like this in the dominant culture, managing resources. And we get to impose dominant culture agendas on these supposedly ignorant people who don't know how to properly manage their resources. And that's a horrifying way of thinking. And Narby wanted to say, no, they know how to manage their resources just fine. And he wanted to try to show this. He wanted to try to show that these people had a lot of knowledge we didn't even have. But he found himself a little bit stuck because he couldn't tell the powers that be that the reason these people knew how to manage their resources is because the resources told them how to do it. The plants taught them and the other beings taught them. People listen to plants, and by listening to plants and other beings, like black elk, listening to coyote, and listening to the whole of creation, getting visions, different beings, we find this all over, human beings actually listening to the land, to the elements, to the plants, to the animals. And even that word, animals, you know, <laughs> it's a funny word, because humans are animals. I remember when I was a kid, I was in second grade, it's, it's such a clear memory, one of those memories that just, I think, will always stick with me. And the teacher said, who here thinks they're an animal? And this kid in front of me raised his hand, and I always thought of him as a little bit goofy, you know? He was like a little bit of a class clown. And when he raised his hand, I laughed, because I thought he was being a clown. And the teacher looked at him, and she said, that's right, human beings are animals. We're all animals. And it shocked me that I had, I had thought immediately that there are humans and there are animals. It was automatic. And then I started to think, well, wait, but of course, when I relate to my dog, and when I was a little kid, my dog was my hero. And so I didn't relate to him as if he were just an animal, some animal, but as if he were a person. And notice that incoherence. Why did part of me think that they immediately accepted a division between humans and animals, so much so that it was funny to me that this kid was raising their hand as a human and animal, and I just thought this is a joke. Of course not. And yet there was another part of me for whom the most important person in my life, maybe aside from my mother, but at least one of the most important people in my life was my dog. He was my best friend, and I loved him so much. And like so many children, my dog at times offered more solace 
than even my own mother. So there was an incoherence there, a part of me that related to my dog as a really important person, a person I loved, a person I wanted to learn from. And there was a part of me that thought he was just an animal. And if we want to figure out how we heal on Turtle Island and in the world in general, but how all people heal, how the land and all the beings heal, how human beings can re-indigenize, what if we have to ask this question? Could we learn from the horse? And what does that mean? Really, what does it mean? Because when we ask the question deeply enough, it means turning the entire industry of horsemanship and most everything currently connected to horses upside down. All of it, including equine therapy, which is not usually studying from the horse, you know, and asking the horse, how do I live in this place? Even in equine therapy, we have an agenda and often a personal problem. We have some being, some human being who's suffering. They have a problem. And they go through some sort of exercises, often in a round pen. So immediately, <laughs> notice something strange. We're going to do something totally unnatural to the horse. An affront to wildness and sacredness, we go to a fence. We're going to stick you in this fenced place with a horse, and the horse has no choice but to deal with you, to relate to you and your problem. And so you have your project, your psychological problems, and the horse is going to help you. Clearly, the horse has such incredible psychic presence, such incredible presence in the soul of the world and our soul too, that this works. It actually works. Even if it's out of attunement with ecological and spiritual reality, the horse does this by its magic, by its medicine. And it has nothing to do with the humans, with this, this supposed setup. Here, we're going to go into the round pen. That's all human stuff. And then the horse works this magic. And we have this incredible experience that we say that was magical. And it's funny. Sometimes it involves chasing the horse around the round pen with a stick. You know, I mean, it's not supposed to. That's not the, the most sensitive description, but that is what happened. You know, a lot of times we put the human being in there with a stick or a rope or something. And there's a strange interaction that the horse is forced into and the human being feels better. And then we get back in our SUV and we drive however many miles. Maybe we drive to an airport. Maybe we get a fast food burger on the way and we get on the airplane. We fly back home to New York and we go on with our life with a wonderful memory. And notice how all of that has nothing to do with anything eco-literate or living sensibly in the world. All of that defies what the horse might want for us, which is not to pollute the earth. The fast food burger just puts pressure on the other wild horses out there because the ranchers want to use the land to graze the cattle. But we got to have cheap beef and we got to have our airplanes and our life in the city and our wonderful memory now that we fix this problem. And we've left so much lost because maybe the horse wanted to say to us, 
Okay, I'd like to teach you how to live in attunement. Live in attunement with wildness, with sacredness, with yourself. Live in attunement with this place that my ancestors made. This is our place, our home. And you come here, and yes, I appreciate your suffering. You're anxious, you're depressed, it hurts. And these things have happened to you in your life, and it's all important but you are making your healing separate from mine and separate from the healing of this place and everything that has happened here to my ancestors, to your ancestors, to the indigenous people's ancestors. The horse may have had boundless magic to offer and we settled for something that might have seemed momentous to us, but which in some scary sense may have cheated us, cheated the horse, cheated the earth, cheated the whole community of life. And, and admitting, yes, it sounds really scary because we have to be sensitive here. We, we can get hooked by the self-help catastrophe and we have to still recognize that there are people with severe trauma, PTSD, depression, and many other challenges and ailments who have found life-saving medicine in the horse. And we want to honor that horse medicine that horse magic, and honor the suffering of those beings, honor those people. And maybe the best way to honor all of that might be to ask, what happens if we shift our relationship to the horse, to ourselves, to the world even more radically? Maybe we begin to heal our PTSD with the relationship we currently have, but we leave the cause of PTSD intact and others will still get it. And what if the horse could heal that? Not just our PTSD, but the cause. And also the horse's trauma. What if that could be healed? The self-help catastrophe means we get our help from the horse and we don't become indigenous. We don't become eco-literate. We don't understand the nature of mind or the mind of nature. Not deeply, not profoundly better. We might understand some parts of our mind better. We might have helped our mind a little bit. We might have helped our heart in a way that seems important. But at the end of the day, we've treated something but haven't totally healed. We haven't let go of the duality between our own healing and the healing of the world so that a better, bigger magic, a better medicine, bigger medicine could open up. And so everything we do with horses, racing them, riding them, doing therapy with them, all of that seems to follow a totally different track from coming to the horse and saying, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Will you teach me how to live in this world? Because I have to live in a place when I live in this world and you and your ancestors made this place. And I recognize that we're lived by powers we pretend to understand and you horse, you are one of those powers in my soul. So will you teach me my soul? And along the way, you know, if it's possible, if it's okay, I, re I recognize I'm going to have to deal with this anxiety and this depression and my addictions and all of it. So maybe part of what I can learn, I can learn how to heal those things, how to let them heal themselves. 
Maybe I can learn how your medicine and magic works. And I see that this all goes together. I don't want you to have to, to be cut off. I don't want your wounds and what you're carrying to be cut off from what I'm carrying. Could we say all of that to the horse? And maybe more, I don't know. Could we say to the horse, you know, I've come to you after doing a lot of preliminary work. I studied. I learned some love wisdom. I studied it. I learned compassion meditation. I began to understand the nature of mind and the mind of nature. I started to meditate and to study ecology. I started to do the work so that I could be in your presence, to have a mind and heart and body that can listen, that can receive your teachings. And if we had done all that, we wouldn't maybe have to say some of those things because if we had done that work, we would be in their presence in a way that allowed them to teach us something much bigger than what ordinarily happens in our interactions with horses. Even though, admittedly, again, and we can say this a million times, it has to be said, even though the things that people experience with horses already seem profound, the world needs more. Our situation demands the impossible. So we have to let go of what's already possible. That's fine. So we've seen what's possible. That's good. How do we find what's impossible? Finding what's impossible means the horse could save America. The horse could save our souls. Not some kind of blasphemy, but as a practice and realization of our own religious, spiritual, and philosophical tradition. And there are people out there trying to work to save horses. How do those people let the horses save them? Not in the obvious ways. You know, it's important that when we go out, we try to help the horses and the horse opens our heart. Just, wow, we get this broken openness. It can feel incredible and healing. So important in a relative way. But what about the further? What about the more? What about practicing the whole of life onward? The way the horse ancestors did to make this place here for us, this whole world, wherever we're at. How do we touch that? How do we let go enough to experience the magic of horses? Okay, so this has been a broad view. Maybe, maybe it's so broad that you, you might have to listen again. We've tried to sense the magic that horses might offer by taking a view of millions of years and vast landscapes. Acknowledging our unconscious, you know. We haven't gotten too directly provocative because it can help to ease into these sorts of things. We'll go into more details in other contemplations, you know, some specific things that are really important. But if we can sense the radical nature of what we've considered here, that the horse could teach us, just throw out everything that we think we know, and that the horse might help us re-indigenize, that the horse might teach us our own religion. It's not that there is a gospel that mentions birds and grasses and maybe horses, but what if the horses are the gospel? They're the good news, present right there. 
the teachings are right there in that being. And the being can carry us to an understanding of our own soul and the value of our life, the meaning of our life. And when we begin to think really radically about it, we can think to ourselves that whatever we're doing with horses, however we relate to them, there is yet more. And that more might stand in contrast to how we are now. In other words, something we're doing right now in relation to horses, in relation to ourselves, in relation to the world, does nothing more than cut us off from a magic we might otherwise experience. There's more magic waiting. And the horse would love for us to experience it, to taste it. Before we close, we should go back to that image of Nietzsche. Maybe we could ask if we all aren't a little like shamans, and if the dominant culture itself hasn't become like a young shaman with sickness in the body, with a mind unstable. And the image of the horse, the presence of the being who has defied the dominant culture, maybe that being can trigger our spiritual emergence and finally help us get free from the pattern of insanity that Nietzsche himself critiqued. Horses transcend all our words and concepts. Now we used all the words that we did in our contemplation only to make space for what we didn't say. We didn't say what the magic and medicine of horses is. We didn't even really ask what the magic and medicine of horses is. Instead, we tried to begin to ask how to ask that question. And we tried to create the spaciousness of 50 million years in our souls to begin to receive the vastness of the horse and its mysteries. Another way of putting that might be to say we're seeking a way to ask how the horse can initiate us into magic and into sacredness. How we could enter a sacred space with the horse and become initiated into the mysteries of life. When we see people being incoherent, and certainly as the incoherence approaches or enters into breakdown, we can understand that person or even a group of people as seeking a sacred space. Perhaps we could call it an extraordinary space, a space that can hold the process of transformation they need to undergo in order to regain sanity, in order to mature, to evolve into the next level of their development and arrive at a wholeness, a healthiness, a holiness. The dominant culture has become more or less bankrupt in terms of any serious and spiritually effective initiation practices. The horse as a vehicle for the soul could carry us into sacred spaces, could initiate us into our own transformation. We could look at the whole history of the dominant culture as the behavior of a person experiencing a mental breakdown. Just 
consider the dominant culture as a person, look at its history and say, well, that's someone who's having a breakdown. They're behaving kind of insanely. And Plato taught us a little bit about this. Plato suggested that we can understand the soul by looking outside of ourselves. Because Plato taught that the soul is subtle and difficult to perceive. And so while all traditions of love wisdom teach us to go inside, so to speak, Plato thought we also needed to learn by looking outside at the world. And Buddha also teaches this in, in, in his own way. Many philosophers, Wangzi, we could look outside ourselves to learn something about the structure of our own soul, but in part because we're interwoven with this world. It wasn't necessarily Plato's primary point in giving that teaching, but we can go with it. And we can imagine the dominant culture as a soul, as our collective soul, reflecting our personal soul, so to speak. And we can look at its behavior and we could say, this is a crazy person. Because this soul is wrecking the conditions of its own existence. And it's totally incoherent. It's in crisis. And then we could ask, how will that soul heal? Which is like asking how our own soul will heal. See, look outside first. And we recognize, well, this soul is in spiritual emergency. It needs help. It needs to enter a sacred space in order to rediscover sacredness. And that's almost a trick in itself. It needs to enter an extraordinary space and to go through a process of transformation and healing, like the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell described, but not in some kind of warrior way, but just a purely internal journey, so to speak. And this means that each of us will have to do this. Maybe not every last person, but some significant number of us may have to do this to save the culture from itself to heal and evolve ourselves and evolve the culture and heal the culture, evolve it into something more vitalizing, more healthy, more alive and alive. In the dominant culture, when a person enters spiritual emergency because of this context, they can become a danger to themselves and even to others. That's why people get around them get scared and they may end up going to an institution but there's no institution for us to send the dominant culture to. It'd be nice if we said to the dominant culture, okay, you go over here and heal. We can't do it. We can't send the culture away to grow up. And so the dominant culture, and that means those of us in it, may need to seek initiation from a healer. Who might that be? It might be the horse. The horse might have something so profound, so subtle, so important to teach us. And of course, we have human beings, too, who can also help us navigate, get to the sacred space and navigate the sacred space as a container and go through this process. Some humans have attained a little bit more maturity. They've become more rooted in certain wisdom traditions, more rooted in general in wisdom, love, and beauty. There are humans among us with very deep practices, and we might seek initiation from them. And we might also ask for their help and for the help of the wisdom traditions for us to seek initiation from the horse. But we can't just think we can seek initiation directly from the horse because the dominant culture is a little too incoherent for that. Sure, it, in a non-dualistic sense, it could work out, but it, 
seems to involve unnecessary and unwise risks. We can't just sit in front of a horse and think a big transformation will come. People try that, and they get what appear to be big transformations, but they're often important things that feel bigger than they really are because we're not aware of the larger space. And we don't see how the culture is still crazy and our fundamental incoherence remains. Something happened, but not the bigger transformation. That's just what we're getting at. It's the difference between sitting in front of a horse the way most people do and sitting under the tree the way Buddha did, you know? So most of us sit under a tree and the same way we might stand in front of the horse. And somehow when Buddha sat under the tree, or if he were to sit in front of a horse, it was different. Now why? He got training. He went to teachers. He learned love wisdom. He learned philosophy and meditation. And when he sat down under that tree, it became the cosmic tree. He sat down beneath the cosmic tree and became fully initiated into the mysteries of life. And we would have to sit down with the cosmic mare in the same way. We need some training first. We need some orientation. We have to learn a little bit more about the nature of our mind and the mind of nature. Because consciousness is not a human phenomenon alone and it's not an ego. It's not just an egoic perspective. We haven't fully metabolized that, even in the presence of non-human beings whom we might love and care for. There's a mystery of consciousness that we still haven't entered, haven't been initiated into. And we are beginning to ask in this contemplation, how might we approach this? We've asked if there's something subtle and profound in the horse, something we haven't yet seen, no matter how much we've seen already how much we think we know or have seen about the world, about horses, about ourselves. How do we prepare ourselves to go a little further, to shift a little more deeply and to heal the culture at the same time, not dualistically anymore? And so it's first just this challenging practice of letting go of what we think we know and stopping behaving like knowers and doers as if we are the exception, as if Socrates could question us and we would have all the answers. Now, of course, we, consciously we say, no, no, I, I understand I'm ignorant, but our behavior is as if. That's what Socrates was noticing. He went to people whose behavior was as if they, well, you must know what you're doing. And we behave as if Socrates wouldn't pin us down. He wouldn't discover any ignorance in us, not even a hint. Or would he? Because Socrates showed that even people in their supposed domain of expertise ultimately had fragmented views, partially correct opinions. The partial truths had some truth to them. Of course, they were partial truths. But the incoherence created real problems. And the people were behaving as if they knew. And the incoherence was a threat to the whole culture. And so, of course, ironically, the Athenians said, no, you are the threat to the culture. Just as we exterminated the horse, they exterminated Socrates. Now, we didn't totally succeed, but to go from 
millions of horses on Turtle Island to thousands in the wild. That's pretty successful. I mean, Athenians didn't wipe out every philosopher, but they got a few. And Socrates tried to show us that in relation to life, what matters is wisdom, not just experiences we've had, not facts we can cite, not just things we think we can accomplish or do. In other words, not that we can get a horse to do this or that, not that we made a billion dollars or whatever we think we've accomplished. He simply asked, okay, is this human being wise, loving, and beautiful? All the way down. Have they transformed and healed? Have they arrived at wholeness? Total intimacy with life. Have they matured and deepened into the mystery? And how can the horse help us begin to do these things? Help us realize them. Realize our own wisdom, love, and beauty. In order to answer that question, we have to go to that place Socrates brought people to, the aporia. Aporia means, I don't know how to go from here. And we would have to stay there quietly. I don't know how to go from here. Really not know, without giving up, without becoming passive or resigning. But just not know and see if the magic might begin to reveal itself. This episode is dedicated to Aragon and Rio and all my friends, my horse friends and teachers, and to all the ancestors and kin of those horse friends and teachers around the world and throughout history. If you have any questions, reflections, or stories of magic to share, Get in touch through wisdomloveandbeauty.org if you have stories of horses and horse magic and whatever it is, we'll see if we can't bring some of it into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs>